Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, our hearts uh, often distract us. Our minds wander, but we pray in these moments, these brief moments here together, that your spirit would cause our hearts to be stirred to attention, to hear what you say to the church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I begin uh, this morning with a couple questions. First, um, is anyone familiar with the BBC TV show that has been going on now for decades, Doctor Who? Anybody besides my wife? Okay, good. A couple of us. I'm so glad that I'm not the uh, only nerd in the room. Uh, for those of you who are unaware of this TV show that has been r- long time running in, in Britain, uh, the basic premise is this, uh, it's a sci-fi thing and uh, through comedy drama, this doctor travels through time back and forth and he has this enemy, this foe that keeps showing up everywhere he kind of ends up going and it is uh, that of the Dalek. Now, if you saw these Daleks, these, this enemy of the doctor, um, it's basically an upside down garbage can with a plunger attached to the front of it. And uh, these goofy uh, robot like creatures, they, they go around and every time they come in contact with the doctor, they really only have one phrase that they use over and over as it expresses their desire of what they want to do to the doctor. So they say, exterminate, exterminate, exterminate. And it's this, this idea of, look, we only have one track. We're, we're going down one road. It is to rid the world of the doctor. Okay. Second question for you. For those of you who prefer shows on the state side, sci-fi related as well, but is anybody here a fan of this TV show that's been also running for decades and decades, Star Trek? Okay, so we have a couple other nerds in the room as well. Good to see. Well, Star Trek, the, the crew, as they're aboard the ship, they also face various enemies there, don't they as well? And, and you know, as you've heard uh, this now is so well-known in pop culture that one of the enemies that they would face uh, quite frequently would be that of the Borg, right? And, and you know the Borg, maybe not the name so much, but you've heard the phrase, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And, and with Star Trek, the whole idea, it's different. It's not like the Daleks. The Daleks say exterminate, exterminate, but the Borg, they take a different track, The idea there is not to necessarily rid the world or the universe, in this case, of your enemy. It's to get your enemy to be 
into the fold, to become like you, to tuck them in to the point where they are useful for your service, so you don't outright kill them. And so you see, friends, what we have in these two sci-fi shows are two ways of destroying your enemy, killing or compromise. You kill them, or you make them just like you. And you know that this happens in so many spheres, uh, whether it's politics, whether it's socially, whether it's through national warfare. You can kill your enemy or get your enemy slowly to not be your enemy anymore. He just becomes just like you. And this, my friends, is exactly what we see this morning in our letter to the church at Pergamum is killing and compromise. The story, though, the church of Pergamum doesn't really begin there in Asia Minor. It doesn't begin there in Turkey. I want to rewind so that you understand this letter to the church of Pergamum because the story here really begins back when when the Hebrews were going out of Egypt. It begins with the story of the Exodus. As they were fleeing there from Pharaoh and they entered and began over through the wilderness wanderings, finally entering into the promised land. And what we find there at that time is that they were conquering. God had been granting them success. All the enemies of Yahweh were being destroyed and they were overtaking their towns so that they would have the land there. And so they recently had conquered the Amorites, as we read in the Old Testament. And King Balak, who was the king of Moab at this time, King Balak, he sees what's going on. He says, wait a sec, time out. These Israelites, they've come into the land. Everywhere they go, God is granting them success. And pretty soon they're going to come to our city. And so the wheels begin to turn and King Moab, the king of Moab, Balak is saying, we can't have this happen. We, we must do something. And so he says, I'm going to get a prophet who will come and prophesy against Israel. Because if the prophet will prophesy against Israel, well, maybe then they won't be, they'll be destroyed. They won't be able to overtake our, our area. And so he says, I'm going to find a good prophet. He begins to come to this prophet Balaam. And this is where it gets kind of confusing because you have B's and A's, Balak and Balaam. Just remember Balak with the K is the king of Moab. Balaam is the prophet. Okay. And this is where, of course, we get this um, desire uh, for Balak to say, look, if I can hire Balaam, so he opens up a briefcase of money and he shows Balaam and he says, look, all these $100 bills, these are unmarked. You can take them. There's a helicopter. It will take you off. Doesn't matter. Just want you to do one thing. Prophesy against Israel. And so, you know, he, he seems like he's going to start heading down that track. And then we come to the famous story that many of us are familiar with, with Balaam's donkey, right? So this is where Balaam's going down the road. The angel is in the road, but Balaam doesn't see it. The donkey sees it. The donkey stops. Balaam is whacking the donkey. Eventually, the donkey turns. And this is where we get that, you know, that God can speak through the mouth of a mule. Or oftentimes, as we like to say it, God can speak through fill in the blank um, to, to use whatever he wants to speak his truth to us, right? And what the angel says to Balaam in that moment is, don't you dare Say one word on behalf of God, unless it's what you were told to speak. And so Balaam, he begins to speak blessings over Israel. And Israel is successful. But later we read, and it is alluded to here, it's also alluded to um, later in the book of Numbers, where Balaam, even as he prophesied that good would happen to Israel, because he knew that that was what he had to do, he gets over to the side with 
King Balak. So yeah, Balaam and Balak, they're having this conversation. And he says, look, I think there's another way around this. I could prophesy that evil will come on Israel, but that's not how it works. But I have another way. Why don't you get them to compromise? Get the men of Israel to sleep with the Moabite women. And then you've already won. He says, they will turn then and, and worship the Moabite gods. They will effectively lose the war. No shots even have to be fired. Get the men, yes, get the men sexually involved with the Moabite women. And you've already won. The rest will just take care of itself. So did every man? No, but many did. Enough to cause massive devastation. And I bring up this entire background. We will come back to this, but this is all background so you understand why Jesus is going to bring up this scene. Because what we see in this letter will be first this killing and then this compromise. The killing is in verses 12 through 13. The compromise will be in verses uh, 14 and 15. And then we'll conclude by looking at the renewal found in 16 and 17. So first, the killing in verses 12 through 13a. I'm going to read this again. The angel of the church of Pergam- in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast to my name. Now, where we live, friends, is important. Where we dwell is important. Hear the tone. You could read this in a negative sense. I know the type of people you fraternize with. I know where you live. I know the type of people you're hanging out with. That's not what Jesus means here. What Jesus is saying, the tone is more like this. I know the type of place that you're living in and the trial it is to live amongst the surrounding nations, the surrounding people groups. The, 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 the place where you live is where the enemy is at work double time. He says, I know where you live because you're living where Satan's throne is. Now, why does Jesus say this? Pergamum. Pergamum was this city that was not on the, on the shore. It was built up high. It was more, you know, built up higher, like a, on a, think more of like a plateau. And then further, up on this plateau where the city is, you would go up further and there was literally on the highest part of, of the town, they had a throne there. And the throne was Zeus's throne. And so at this throne there and at an altar there, they would offer sacrifices 365, 24 hours a day, burning sacrifices to Zeus, not to Yahweh, but to Zeus. And so Jesus is saying, I know right where you dwell, right in the middle of the things that were so opposed to Christianity that they were being associated with Satan himself. And then we see in 13b here where he says, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, history tells us that Antipas, one of the um, Christians there in this early church, that he was faithful, that he remained strong in his faith, that he was verbal and vocal about it to the point that it got him killed. Church history tells us that he was cooked alive in a cauldron because he was faithful to Jesus. Not just he, but apparently, because if you read this context right here in in what we have here, in Jesus' words to the church at Pergamum, the entire church itself 
was being faithful. So it wasn't just that, that Antipas went off and said, oh, I will be bold for Jesus. It was the entire church was being bold and the arrow hit Antipas. These people said, whether it's in vogue or whether it's out of vogue, we will not say Caesar is Lord. We will say Jesus is Lord and that he is the one true God. That salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. That you will not get forgiveness from God by offering sacrifices to Zeus. And this, my friends, is what got Antipas killed. Remember, we've said the very first way, if you want to get rid of your enemy, is you kill them. If you, this is how you deal with it. You can kill them off. You just kill them. And this was dealt with more explicitly last week. So if you weren't with us last week, we considered the church of Smyrna. I encourage you to go back and listen. So you understand the tactics and what is happening even as we speak this moment. While Christians meet, being attacked, being murdered for their faith globally. And while standing faithful and guarding the front door, this church in Pergamum, you know, they were saying we are willing to embrace this sort of persecution. But they forgot to watch the back door and they had let an enemy in. The Nicolaitans. So we see this then in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, In light of the Old Testament, the good news is we've already covered the history of this. Hopefully this makes more sense with the second reading through now going, ah, I see what's happening. Jesus is looking back to the events that happened with Balak and Balaam and saying, I see a repeat here. I'm seeing this being repeated. And so there's a connection between with uh, Balak and Balaam and the sexual immorality and the food sacrificed to idols. The same events are now occurring here with this group called the Nicolaitans. And Christ, as we've read previously, he hates the work of the Nicolaitans who are bound up with this idolatry, the sexual immorality. This is a good spot to remind us, friends, that sexual immorality is sex outside the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's just it. Blanket statement. That's all it is. The sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of a marriage. And so... To our modern ears, some would say, this seems very stuffy. Perhaps this seems closed-minded. Why is Jesus so concerned with who I sleep with? I mean, doesn't Jesus want me to be happy after all? And my response to that might be, well, it's interesting. Have you considered how open Christianity is to so many things? Once you become a Christian, although I believe there are biblical guiding principles, uh, but at the same time, you can think of the many, many ways that Christ and Christianity are so very tolerant. Does Christ tell us exactly what type of clothes we should wear? Or the style of music that we should listen to? Or the jobs that we should have? Or the number of children? Or the hobbies and interests? Or where you must live? Now, to be sure, I think the Bible would guide us with wisdom on some of these things. But you just think of how open Christianity is to so many of those areas of our lives. Which is why you can have Christians right now in a yurt in Mongolia. And they dress very differently than I do. And they eat food totally unlike what I eat normally. And they listen to music like I wouldn't listen to. And they speak a different language. And they have different cultural customs. 
And their worship services, if we were to go there today on a Sunday and join them with worshiping Jesus, it would look radically different than what we do here. But friends, they worship the same Jesus I worship. They've had their lives radically changed by Jesus Christ just like we've had our lives changed by Jesus Christ. Christianity, friends, is so open and so broad that Christ and the gospel can infiltrate any culture anywhere. And in fact, the early church was very cautious about this very thing. They said they do not want to burden new Gentile believers. So in Acts chapter 15, the early church laid out three key things that they said that they would be intolerant of. As broad and as wide sweeping as Christianity can be, they said, here's some guardrails we're going to just put down. We're going to focus on these things that we will not tolerate. Things that are polluted by idols, sexual immorality, that broad category, that broad category and then food that was strangled or blood. And you look at these elements and you can say, well, you know, are these things, did they just, did the early church just sort of come up with them arbitrarily? Did they just in a vacuum say, hey, we'll just pick a couple of these things? No, friends, they hammered out the things that were most near and dear to the very heart of Christian living in the gospel. You see, these elements directly relate to our relationship with Jesus. Our hearts cannot worship both the world and Jesus Christ. Our hearts are like a beam that can only point in one direction or the other. So if you worship the things of the world, you cannot at the same time worship Jesus. And so this is why they put this idea of idolatry as being a main category issue that Christians must deal with in all of its subcategory ways. And then we have the binding commitment to our spouse, this marriage between a man and a woman. And that we are mirroring this type of commitment that we are to have with Christ. This is bound up with the gospel. Now we'll flesh this out more next week, but just understand that these things were not brought out in a vacuum. They were connected with Christ and the gospel. I want you to think for the moment of the opposite of this, especially as it relates to sexual immorality. Consumeristic relationships. I know all about consumeristic relationships. I'm involved with several consumeristic relationships right now. Confession time. When I go over to all these stores up and down here in the mountain corridor, it's a consumeristic relationship. Whether it's the hardware store or Thriftway, you better have what I want. It better be cheap. It better be quick. It better be easy. And if you don't, I'm taking my money elsewhere. That's a consumeristic relationship, isn't it? And it, and it really, you have to understand this is how many of us will view, and if we look, some of us on back in our past relationships and sexual relationships, that's exactly how it was. It needed to be easy, it needed to be cheap, and they needed to perform. And ultimately, this is what, friends, I would, I would propose is destroying our relationships. It's a consumeristic, half-hearted commitment. At base, this is a greed issue, and this is why this uh, is tied to the principle in idol worship, it's Jesus saying, hey, am I not enough for you? Are you saying that you must have more? And, and for those who say, yeah, the end game is, them, is themselves. This is why sexual relationships outside of marriage and pornography are just greedy consumeristic expressions of our lack of commitment to Christ and our spouse. This was the work of Nic the Nicolaitans. This was the work of Balak through Balaam. Turning covenant-committed people into consumeristic, half-hearted people to lead them to compromise. Remember? 
How do you get rid of your enemy? Kill them? Or you get them to compromise? Now, I'm sure at this moment, in this room, there are two responses, and probably a mixture of both. Uh, There are some of us who think back to our past, and we feel great shame. While others here of us, we can do this. We can pat ourselves on the back and say, don't worry, none of this is about you. You've done fine. But the truth is, friends, I want to remind us all, from a whole Bible perspective, if you consider the whole of Scripture, nobody here skirts out from this. Because the fall has affected us holistically. The fall did not just affect you spiritually. It affected you physically. The fall affects us all sexually as well. So that nobody here can remain perfectly pure sexually. Because we see that even as in Jesus' words, the mental and emotional aspects of our sexuality. And age is not a factor, as many of us know as well. We struggle at all age categories with this. This issue of sexual immorality has hit the church in toto, totally. And this is why I want to bring to mind Ray Ortland's uh, illustration as he discusses sin in general. He, he says, look, sin is one of those things that really just hits all of us. He says, if sin were like blue that you had kind of splattered up on a wall, he says, all of us would have a splattering on us of blue. Everybody, we would look around this room and you would go, oh, you too. Oh, you too. Because we all struggle with this blue on us. Even, he says, as I preach, there's an element in which it comes out slightly blue. Because sin affects all things. And so we ask, what should have happened here in Pergamum? Upon discovering the sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols, what should they have done? Well, friends, they should have encouraged them to stop, to repent, to return to a whole commitment, admit that they're wrong. And if they failed to turn from it, they put them out of the church until they had come to their senses. But what they did, and we know this from the repeated phrase, you have some, this is repeated two times, you have some. The sense is that they allowed, that they overlooked these people, and they were allowed to remain in the church as is, in participation, in worship, and communion, even though that they're living this double life. Friends, Christ is not shocked by their sin. God is never shocked by our sin. He is grieved when we remain and continue in it. Let me say that again one more time. Christ is not shocked. We can be shocked by our own sin. We can be shocked that we, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did that. Christ is not shocked. He's grieved when we don't repent. He's grieved when we don't seek help to get to deal with it. When we overlook it. And so church, I just ask, would you pray for the members in this regard? Would you pray for this church community in this regard? Would you pray for your elders in this? The enemy is working overtime to destroy your elders. The last statistic I heard is that for every pastor who falls into sexual immorality, whose marriage dissolves, that something like 10 to 12 other marriages will dissolve as a result or in connection with that. Friends, we are at war. We are at war and the enemy is coming to attack us and it is not by killing. ISIS is not marching through the doors with swords this moment. But don't you forget, we are under attack. And the the game plan for us is compromise. The game plan that we are facing is consistent, ongoing 
pull to compromise. I sense it. I feel it. I see it. And I sense it. If you can get the men to fall, if you can get the men to fail, the whole family comes down. The church comes down. Well, what is the way forward? What is the renewal for Christians who face this, who are in this, who are dealing with this? First, rewind back to verse 12. And the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And I want you to skip down to verses 16 where we see the sword again. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right. Greg Beale had pointed out this amazing connection here. Um, While Balaam, recall, I'm going to rewind back to Balaam, and he's on the donkey, and he's walking down the path, and the donkey sees the angel. Balaam doesn't. Balaam's striking the donkey. And then the angel says something interesting to Balaam. He says, I I was about this close. I was this close to killing you and letting the donkey live. He says, I was going to take my sword and kill you for your actions. And so it's interesting there. Balaam is threatened with a sword. Then later we read in Numbers, Balaam gets killed. Do you know what he gets killed with? He gets killed with the sword for his evil against Yahweh and Israel. And then it's very interesting that the sword theme is picked up here. Jesus is connecting all these things. He's going Balaam, Balak, Nicolaitan, sword. And the vision that we got in chapter 1, all of these pieces where Jesus is saying, my eyes are like a flame of fire. I see crystal clear. My hair is white as snow. There's nobody wiser than I. And my mouth, there's a sharp two-edged sword because what I have to say will cut. And I bring judgment. And so here, the picture that we have is Christ is coming and he's got a sword too. Just like with Balaam and the angel, here Jesus has a sword of judgment and it is for those who do not repent. Even though some were indulging, the whole church needs to repent. It's interesting that this piece here that we could expect Christ to be enraged that sin is in the church. And yes, I think this grieves Christ. But here the anger also seems to be at the church as whole, at the whole church, because they seem to dismiss or ignore this blatant sin. This is where I want to remind you, yes, church, we must be patient with those in sin, especially those who are struggling, who um, don't desire this sin. We must be patient and walk alongside struggling believers. Remember Proverbs where it says the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. But the one thing that you and I, we cannot tolerate is giving up the fight. Giving up the battle and just saying as the church in Pergamum had, well, you know, they're in sin, but let it go. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the drama. It's a mess. Let's not go there. And Jesus would have us know Yes, it's a mess, but we must deal with it. To repent then, we must open up to deal with it. Sorry, to repent then, we have opened, if we refuse to repent, we've opened ourselves up to judgment. We've invited Christ speaking of his sharp sword, piercing his judgment right into us. And for us, this means if we ignore sexually immoral lives or materialistic greedy lives or an idolatrous lifestyle, we're inviting Christ's judgment rather than his blessing. 
And even worse here, Christ uses this word war. We will have God warring against us. James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Friends, this, this letter, indeed the book of Revelation, has so much of this warfare and fighting theme behind it. We have in our passage here a sharp two-edged sword. We have Antipas who was killed. Uh, we have the, him saying, I will come in war against them with the sword of my mouth. And we even have that language, conquering, to the one who conquers. I just want to remind you in this that even this idea of fighting and warfare, this is a theme in, in, in Scripture. So much of Scripture has this theme of it. Think of Ephesians chapter 6, where we're called to put on the whole armor of God. We do not merely fight against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. I want to remind you of 1 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, watch out for greed, watch out for harmful desires. And he calls Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Why do people fall in love with money? Why do people fall in love with idolatrous things? Why do people worship sex? It is because we do not believe God has the best for us. We don't believe. Friends, it's a fight to believe. Now listen, I want to be very careful at this moment because I'm, what I'm not saying is that now you just need to muster up a little bit more faith, like grab yourself up by your bootstraps and just believe and tell yourself, all right, I'm going to believe. That's not how this sort of fighting faith works. How this sort of fighting faith works is we conquer Because Jesus conquered, and our faith is in the conquering work of Christ on our behalf and in and through us. And when we believe this, it's only because he is faithful to have conquered death, and that he is, this is why this really all comes as good news to us. For those who believe, we fight because Christ is really fighting for us. Now this letter, it leaves us with some good news, including the rewards of the faithful and believing, those who are going to trust, they will receive, as we read, this hidden manna, this white stone, and this new name that is on the stone. Hidden manna is interesting. It's, uh, I think this is alluding to Exodus chapter 16 at verse 33, where the Israelites were told, if you recall back, and again, they, the Hebrews are exiting out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness, and there was this manna that was coming down from heaven, and they were told to take some of this and put it in a stone jar um, that, that would be a reminder that God had provided food for them when they needed it, uh, that they would keep it for, throughout their generations. And, and I think that uh, the picture then here for this hidden manna is that God has set a banquet table, that he will provide for our sustenance, even as he had provided for the Hebrews in the wilderness. But the question is, well, how do you get into this banquet? Well, you need a ticket to get in. You need a white stone. In the ancient days, in the first century, well, nowadays, you know how this is. You're going to go to the movie theater, and you pay them, you know, and then they give you a ticket stub. Well, increasingly, what's going on now is you will have to have a QR code on your phone. Uh, You know, for various tickets, if you want to get into the venue, you have this code on your phone, and you hold it up, and they scan it. But back in the first century, there was no phones or ticket stub machines. Of course, the way that you would get into the event, uh, you would have to have a white stone. Um, 
oftentimes these could be almost like a little plaque with engraved with something and, and you would, uh, you know, pay the fee in advance. You would get your stone and then when the event comes along, you would have your white stone as your ticket to get in. And as these Pergamum Christians are entering in, they have a new name that is promised. I think it's difficult to nail down exactly what this new name is, but recall in the ancient world that names were meaningful. Uh, perhaps more than we think of names today, they were more meaningful to them because they were bound up with their family, with their lineage, with who they were. Um, it communicated who you belonged to. And I think we see this somewhat hinted down in chapter 3 at verse 12, when Christ is going to address the church in Philadelphia. He says, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him, now here it is, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And so I I think because of what we see there in Philadelphia that perhaps this new name here is in connection, at least in some sense, with God himself. And recall, even though these letters have been written and the rewards are them are written to the one, um, I think that this is really addressed to the church as a whole. I'm not convinced that when we get to heaven that that Christ will have given out, well, I don't know, two and a half billion or three billion, whatever the number is of believers, that everybody's going to have these different names. Being that this is addressed to the one, I would lean towards this being a, a singular name that is given to all of us who believe. Further, I hope that you catch... Uh, the renewal that Christ has been doing through each of these letters. This is all new creation language. So back in Ephesus, and then last week in Smyrna, and and this week here, this is all new creation language. You recall when the Israelites were headed to the promised land, the idea for them that they were leaving Egypt and they were going to get to this land flowing with milk and honey, and during that period they ate manna. And when they entered the land, it all fell flat due to their sin It was corrupted, and Hebrews tells us, look, they were trying to enter the land, they were trying to enter into that new Eden, if you will, and it all came crashing down. That was because this was all in anticipation of a true new land that we are waiting for now, a new paradise. And so as he tells the Ephesians, he was going to grant for for them to eat at the tree of life, and he tells the Smyrna church that he was going to prevent them from being hurt by the second death and he is telling the Pergamum church that the entrance into this new creation is not just for anyone it's only for those who have an entrance ticket into the new heaven a white stone to get you in it's it'll be for those who get in who are going to eat at this banquet it'll be for the manna that he supplies will be for those who no longer have the old name which is connected with sin and death but a new name that is a connection with the Lord himself you are in the new, if you are in the new creation, you will need a new identity. And that identity we have already begun to experience is in, now in Jesus Christ. You see, this is all in connection with Jesus saying, behold. Remember from the cross, he says, behold, I make all things new. Because the new creation work of Jesus began at that moment. It was beginning to break in. And now even to the, to the seven churches, he's saying, I want you to see the fullness of where this is going to, to go. And again, even if everybody in the church falls away, but you remain unwilling to compromise, unwilling 
to compromise. Christ promises you this, new life. This is the promise to us. Here we have a God who speaks truth and will not let us remain in our greed of our own passions, but this God woos us and calls us to be faithful to him. He says, I want you to picture the reward. I want you to see all the reasons to remain faithful. While the world is saying, here's an easy way out. Here's a way to compromise. Christ is putting the end picture for you, saying, I know there's going to be all of this temptation, but keep your eyes on this new entered paradise that you're heading towards, and you will see that it'll be totally worth it. And don't forget, friends, to buy and purchase our entrance into that paradise. It wasn't free. This land that we will dwell in was paid for with the blood of Jesus. Jesus says, this is how committed I am to you. For our sake, he said, I will not compromise, but I will go to the cross for these people. Recall that this book opens up revealing that very thing to us when it reveals Christ to us. In chapter one, verses five through six, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Or consider the words, and I'm just gonna, this is, I'm gonna close out here. Listen to these words of how Christ and John close this book. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut. There will be no more night there. They will bring into into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves were for the healing of the nations and no longer will anything be accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, I just want you to keep that picture in your mind. When you're tempted to skirt the persecution, when you're tempted to compromise, we must again and again put, here's where I'm headed, and this is why I will remain faithful to Christ to the end. Would you pray with me? Father, we desire to look more like you, to be set apart, to be holy. And Father, we confess and admit that oftentimes that has not been our history, it's not been our past Lord, we know that we are all tainted with sin, and so we ask forgiveness of that corporately. We pray that you would wash us anew, that you would give us white robes so that we would stand holy, set apart for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.